everybody. Welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Now, a few weeks ago, we reviewed X-Men number 33 with editor Jordan White. Uh, we saw the X-Men fighting Juggernaut. Professor X was kidnapped by the mysterious Group Factor 3. Uh, we also saw just a few issues before that, the uh, Cobalt Man who went mad in his Iron Man knockoff armor and battled the X-Men briefly, but he ended up as a good guy at the end. Uh, he's the brother of Ted Roberts, the guy that date, uh, Jean Grey has been kind of dating at college. So that leads us into X-Men number 34, which we're going to be reviewing today. And I am super honored to be joined by uh, Noel is back with us from the X-Men Unraveled podcast. Uh, and we have uh, Connor Goldsmith from Cerebrocast and the uh, incredible writer Steve Orlando with us as well. Uh, if you guys would all like to introduce yourselves just briefly, uh, let us know your gender pronouns, what you're working on, uh, where we might know you from. Uh, let's go Noel, Connor, and then Steve. Hi, I'm Noel Reed. I host the X-Men Unraveled podcast where I follow the X-Men comics in chronological order. Uh, pronouns are she, her, and I just got, I uh, just started season two of my podcast where um, starting with the formation of the X-Men. Very cool. And then Connor, go ahead. I'm Connor Goldsmith. I host the podcast Cerebro, which is a character by character exploration of all 59 years of the X-Men franchise. Each episode has a guest and spotlights one character in their complete publication history. Um, it's a passion project that I did in the pandemic, and it just seems to have found an audience, which I wasn't really expecting, but it's been a real privilege, and I love doing it. And I was thrilled to be invited onto your show, Chad, because this is a new show that I think is getting a lot of attention. You've had a lot of great guests on, so I'm happy to be in the club. We're having so much fun, and I'm so honored to have you here. And then, uh, Steve, go ahead. Uh, happy to be here. Yeah. Uh, so I'm Steve Orlando. Uh, for folks might know me mostly as uh, writer of Wonder Woman, uh, writer of Martian Manhunter at DC Comics, but lately uh, writer of Darkhold with Scarlet Witch and uh, Magneto the Mutant Force and Jermaine to this, uh, the newly launching Marauders from the X-Men office, uh, which just our first annual was out in January because it's February now. Wow. <laughs> and uh, our, our main series is starting in March. So uh, I've been all over, folks, but lately at Marvel and having a great time. Uh, for all three of you, uh, and Noelle and I have known each other for a little while, I uh, I love obscure Marvel history. I love mutants. I love uh, philosophical and queer discussions about all kinds of things. And I know all three of you are brilliant in uh, your ability to analyze long continuity and the crazy history and uh, bring a lot of uh, wonderful things up. Uh, Steve, I want to ask you a couple of questions as we start the podcast. Uh, you uh, you have a pretty impressive history with DC and Marvel and, and other books at this point. I've read your work for a long time. In fact, I told my my friend Mike, who is a, uh, a DC fan, he's like, oh my God, that's the Midnighter and Apollo guy. And he had a, <laughs> he had a small orgasm, I think, as I told him you were coming on the podcast. Well, uh, wouldn't be, he wouldn't be the first man I would give him a small orgasm to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you've got, you've got a, a lot of Marvel stuff coming out. And what I am uh, most impressed with, just based on my own level of nerdiness, is your ability to weave in obscure, incredible, old-timey characters into a modern framework. Uh, in Magneto and the Mutant Force, you brought in Mr. One and Mr. Two, and I had to go, wait, oh yeah, those are those guys from that Captain America book that one time. Uh, we've seen you bring in uh, Mamma Max and all kinds of characters, uh, including characters in your upcoming Marauder series that I had to really deep dig in my brain for, uh, uh, like Revelation. 
how do you choose characters uh, uh, to weave into this framework? What's your process? Uh, I mean, so the thing about bringing stuff back, especially, you know, especially if it's just an accent or something like that, but in, in any format is a lot of it. I mean, yes, I love uh, obscure lore. I, I, I learned about superheroes uh, and then comics uh, through trading cards, you know, so in many ways, like many character, every character had the same weight to me, you know, when I was a kid, because I was buying non-sports cards. So it was like, oh, Big Sur is clearly as important as, you know, Hal Jordan, even though he is not. Um, <laughs> so they have always all mattered. And the thing is, too, is that now that I'm on the inside, you know, we, we all put so much love into these things. Uh, you know, in 50 years, I'm going to be hopefully around, but not writing X-Men. And I hope someone is picking up on stuff that they loved when they were a kid and, and, and putting a spotlight on it, too. And the way to pay that forward is to do that to stuff from the past that I think is exciting. Now, how do I choose it? I mean... Listen, the plot always has to come first, but I always think that if you can, you know, why do something generic if you can do something that has a little bit of flavor to it? You know, it could have been any mutant, for example, that Aurora was saving in the annual. But if it's Stitch, then you sort of put a spotlight on her history with Department H. You put a spotlight on the history of, of Alpha Flight or the flight in the case of Stitch. Uh, and, and, you, and you hopefully get some, even if it's 10 people go back and read that book. Well, you know what? That the, the people that worked on uh, book, those books care just as much as me, probably. So uh, I'm happy to help do that. But it really comes about, you know, what's needed for the plot. Uh, Revelation. I wanted a cool sort of Krakoan era form of uh, of email <laughs> of email uh, encryption, and it just seemed to fit the sort of mad science era of mutant circuits and things like that, and how Orcus is trying to do the same stuff, uh, but use it against Krakoa. And it just seemed to fit. I could easily see someone scraping her, you know, scraping her, her cell down uh, from, uh, well, the, the Wolverine Punisher crossover, which is where she's from, uh, and turning it into something useful. Uh, and, and, and that goes for all these things. You know, I, I, if I'm a person, God, God loved the artists that work with me. But if there's a background scene, I'm certainly going to throw in people that will hopefully get a little bit of a rise uh, out of fans and make them happy as opposed to it just being a generic scene. And that's kind of how I feel about it. It's added value and nothing lost. So, uh, you know, why not? Why not put a spotlight on these characters? And, and, and they all mean something to someone. You know, you made you mentioned Mamamax. I'll admit, I truly thought that there were no huge Mamamax fans out there. But upon him appearing in Dark Riders, I was wrong. Uh, same with Stitch, uh, because she's neurodivergent, you know, like she, there, there were a lot of people excited to see her show up and hopefully she can show up again. So all these characters mean something. Um, and to me, you know, again, why go off brand when you can go name brand? And, and that goes for every aspect of the story. I, uh, I have a love of the obscure. I worked for the Marvel handbooks for a while, and then I used to write for the appendix for a long time. And I was actually chatting with, uh, Tom Snagoski who wrote the Marvel Knights book where, uh, Revelation was introduced and I was like oh my god she's appearing in Steve Orlando's book and he goes who <laughs> he couldn't remember having created her he's like I well, gotta go back clear, and uh, appearing is generous she is in a, uh, her cells are used in a data page but we certainly tip well that. that's good because it means the code name's free I was what I, you, that issue came out a week after I said on my show that Revelation would be a great code name for for uh, blindfold Ruth Aldean oh. And then I was like, oh, and now the revelation with like three appearances back because Steve loves. She's not back. She's not back. But, yeah, we yeah, do. Yeah. but it certainly did happen. I mean, the real story is that it's also like. I, revelation specifically has has 
a spot in my heart because my parents took me to Disney, the one that's in Florida. Is that World or Land? World. World. Mm-hmm. And I just wasn't having it because I hate theme parks. And so I ended up just buying a, a comic from the gift shop and reading it in the hotel room <laughs> uh, and, and by the pool. And it was, in fact, the Marvel Knights Punisher Wolverine crossover. So she's Revelation's always been a big deal to me. Uh, even though that's probably one of the deeper dives we've taken. I mean, granted, you guys, you folks have only seen one issue. Uh, But I liked that Tempo was breaking up with Bouncer from Muties and not like a completely original character who we're never going to see again. Because here's the thing. No one thought that we would see Bouncer again, but now Bouncer exists. Bouncer is like a queer character who's around on Krakoa. Who knows? Maybe someone will want to run with that character at some point. Like that is a value added proposition, I think. Yeah, it's all about positioning them in, in hopefully an exciting way. I mean, Stitch has a spot to, uh, she'll end up in. Other people coming back, you know, I try to at least, you can't keep them necessarily always ongoing in a book because our cast is already huge. Mm-hmm. But I do try to at least show where they fit in. You know, like our, our issue six has a return that I think is going to please a lot of people. It's certainly going to please Victor Laval. And, uh, <laughs> and and it's like, I wouldn't bring this character back if there wasn't like, oh, here's a role they fill on Krakoa, you know? Right. So if they're not appearing in the book all the time, you know what they're doing. Uh, for they're, term. The Marvel Universe is such a vast play box uh, full of toys that people can dust off. And my very first Marvel book and my very first X-Men book was X-Verse 27, which is uh, where Tempo kind of leaves the MLF. So seeing mm-hmm. her get some prominence in your book as like, oh, my, like my childhood is singing a little bit. Uh, you you have uh, an ability to kind of craft in these stories without being threatened by the continuity. And I think so many writers can be easily overwhelmed or 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 buried under the history of these characters at times. Uh, I'm, you- I'm more likely to trip up over something that happened five months ago than something that happened five years ago, to be honest, because of late I've been so busy that I have to really do, like it's almost safer to bring someone from 30 years ago uh, because, you know, we as creators are often so busy that we have to, we don't have time to keep up and everything. So in some ways it's actually less intimidating to use like Carver was in the annual mm-hmm. than one of the more well-known Morlocks because for, I, I, we all do our best, especially the Equin office, but for all we know, uh, you know, they've shown up somewhere that, that we just happened to miss. That happened with, I won't reveal who it was, but that happened with a character recently where I was like, oh, like I have this one scene, it's going to be a quick rescue. You know, could I bring someone from Obscuria to spotlight them for Krakoa? And a couple of the names on the list, uh, other creators said that they'd be interested in, but then it turns out uh, another, uh, yet another creator was already using them, you know, but we, but, but I did, we didn't find that out until we were reading the PDFs for print. So, you know, in some ways it is actually less of a minefield to be like, I'm going to use St. Elmo. I don't know why I'm obsessed with that one issue of Elmo. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'm going to use Mr. One and Mr. Two. Although ironically, I was like, nobody's going to fucking use this character, which I actually think is a great idea for a character. And then by complete happenstance, the same month the Mutant Force came out, Al Ewing used them in fucking sword. So, mm-hmm. um I like to attribute that to the time difference. Else, five years or, or five well, five hours ahead of me, but sometimes it feels like five years. So um, it's uh, that's why you often do see a lot of that stuff in my work because yeah, you're making some people happy, and there's less of a chance that I'm going to accidentally trample another creator, which is another pet peeve of mine. I try to never do it. I would never want anyone to do it to me. 
there's uh there's uh, the ongoing challenge as well is the the uh, x-men line is so cohesive and all happening in the same place and often with the same characters just keeping track of what's going on and coming out must be just a huge undertaking as a writer as well it seems like you guys are having a lot of fun together though too what's it been like for you as part of the current team well i mean the, the x-men we x-men office works a lot different than a lot of other offices i mean we're in really close contact uh so um at minimum we always see the books before they go to print which is still months ahead of a month ahead of when they come out you know so we are usually pretty up in things um but you can still be taken off guard you know i only found out the moon was blowing up when i read reckoning war this past week uh you know that's another office uh and it would have been nice you know thank god i didn't set anything in the moon and so you know i have questions for the summer's house yeah we were using that moon but um but no, I mean, the, the office is great. It is so much more connected than any other office I've been in. And it's also extremely encouraging and supportive. I mean, you'll see as Marauders comes out, Connor knows because he has secret connections to me, but like there are huge swings <laughs> in Marauders. Uh, and, you know, to be quite honest, without naming names, there are swings I would not have been allowed to take in other offices I've worked in because of my status as a creator or, you know, because of stuff that doesn't really reach fans, but to have people just be excited for stuff that is additive uh, and, and, and not just to support it, but help aggregate it and make it better is, is really unique. So I think you're getting the best work I've done in a long time. I think that's what you get from everybody in the X-Men office. I've been uh, I've been overwhelmed just getting to know people professionally uh, just through the podcast as I'm getting to know people and hearing their ideas. It's it's really powerful. You guys are clearly putting so much time and effort and passion into all of this. It's amazing. Those secret connections, by the way, are not secret, just in case anybody's wondering what's going on. I, in my day job, I'm a literary agent and Steve is one of my clients. But before we worked together, we actually have been friends for many years. I think we met at that first FlameCon, wasn't it? Uh, we definitely did the one with no air conditioning. That's the one with no air conditioning at the at the Grand Prospect Hall, where all your dreams come true. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, that was that was funny. But so we worked together for we we were friends for a long time, and I kept badgering him like, "Let's do something for the book market. You're so good, and we're working on something now that I'm pretty excited about." But yes, I I work with Steve. Please do not ask me what Steve is doing in his comic books. I'm not at liberty to discuss anything that's going on in my clients. Plus, plus, I might be, you know, I might also be working Connor, so you never know. He might be giving me completely false information to throw me, like, just in case, like, oh, here's where the leak came from. <laughs> Connor told everybody that I'm resurrecting Candy Southern in issue three, you know? Uh, I would never satisfy you to that extent. No, I know. You, you're going to make me do that. You're going to make me the fight my way into... No Zaladane, no Candy Southern. No, I have to. I have to work my way into a gig myself to do that. I know. I know. At this point, it's a, it's a calling. We uh, we love Candy Southern, and uh, we just and missed Zelda her first appearance a couple episodes ago. Mm -hmm. We just talked about and Zelda Vera Cantor is my personal favorite. Uh, the old '60s girls. I want. I want them to have like a a, a one shot backstory where we just get to see things from their side. <laughs> love Vera Cantor. Love Zelda Rubenstein. Jewish queens who should get more spotlight at some point. Vera, I don't think we've seen since X Factor when she turned punk and Hank was too square to date her anymore. It's been a little while. Yep. Uh, Noelle, do you have questions for Steve? Yeah. Um, one of my favorite things is just seeing the relationships between characters and, you know, kind of heading into this new era of Marauders. 
how do you how do you look at building those or changes or anything? How do you how do you look at the relationships between the characters to just kind of build off of what's there? Well, I mean, you know, part of that is is team building, and that's part of our job. You know, you you want you want a team that is not necessarily going to get along perfectly, because otherwise, where's you know where's the drama? But also, like we get as as real people, uh, we grow and change through adversity. So when you're putting the team together, you want folks who are going to uh, challenge each other, uh, challenge challenge the their notions, uh, sometimes challenge them physically and uh, but definitely challenge them intellectually and emotionally. Um, and the good thing about Marauders is, is that we have like a walking nuclear bomb in the team in the form of Cassandra Nova. So like everybody is getting, everybody is getting their core principles, uh, <laughs> their core principles attacked at a, at a daily basis. But at the same time, like, you know, you also have a character like, uh, Kay Pride, who has always been an incredibly strong character, but has really taken on like uh, a very compelling and endearing headstrong nature under Jerry uh that i find really 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 appealing and it's not really it doesn't have any time for bullshit either as we saw in the marauders annual so you want to have people i mean you're building you're building a powder keg basically i mean otherwise there, there's there's little of interest in the book our, you know our job is that we build these powder kegs and then of course we have to keep them from completely exploding but still sizzling you know for as long as the, the book is running the fact that you have Cassandra Nova on the team is just fucking crazy. I can't wait to see. And my favorite moment in your Marauders annual was that very simple moment where Tempo speeds up the breakup. <laughs> so good. <laughs> fast forwards and then slows down when she's ready. It's just I loved that because Tempo is a character I've always really liked because like you, Chad, I read those. She had a couple of really good stories in the 90s that like Nisie said and then Peter David did. But then otherwise she's been kind of gone. And I loved how this introduced her for new readers so cleverly because it's like, we're going to show you exactly how her power works and you get a good sense of her personality. And Steve, you did it in like three panels. I thought that was great. Well, her powers get a lot of spotlight. I mean, her character gets spotlight. She too. can do a lot of cool stuff, but it was a nice, yeah. you know. When she, fights, when she fights Gladiator later in the series, it's very <sighs> Oh, yay. Um, that's going to be fun. Uh, and I love that you're bringing in characters from that beloved run on X Factor that we are all grieving from Leah Williams. So seeing you pick up with Dokken and Aurora is wonderful. Uh, there's so much I'm excited about. I wanted to ask you specifically quickly, we've given a lot of attention to the Scarlet Witch on my podcast. Noelle's been a part of a lot of those conversations. And we've seen some couple, a couple of really powerful redemptive arcs for her, very much saying I'm, I'm tired of being the victim of trauma or the histrionic woman and I'm taking power of myself and your run with her in Darkhold was unexpectedly one more really powerfully strong redemptive story for the Scarlet Witch. Uh, tell me about your work with that character. It's almost like if there wasn't a pandemic pandemic and it came out on time it would have seemed like there was a plan uh, but who knows. Uh, I mean, what you said was important to me. She's been a, she's been looked at and treated differently for a long time. You know, um, her power is great, of course, but it seemed as though she was playing, you know, by a different rule book uh, in, in the way that Marvel Universe treats her. You know, um, yes, obviously, some some terrible things have happened. But terrible things have happened at the hands of a lot of other characters, and they seem to be scot-free a year later, not like bogged down by it for decades. Um, and it's been woven into her even before things like disassembled. It's been woven into her with all of the the Cathan possessions and things like that. Right. 
So with Darkhold, at least we wanted to sort of we wanted to break her free of of an element of that, and I'm really happy about that. And and the, and at the same time, you know, the way that she beats Gathon to me is core to the character, who's had, uh, at least in the present era, a lot of her arc has been like uh, an allegory for mental Ill, struggling with mental illness or struggling with chronic pains, chronic struggles of some kind. And, and the reality often with many of those is that you can't win you you winning is a process of managing and 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 having your good days and 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 building your life around that i mean we made that i personally like it was not subtle in dark hold because she takes her you know thing that's emblematic of that and it's now held within her so you know she is free uh but still has to devote or I should say, and uh, still has to devote a portion of her mindset, a portion of her power to controlling this aspect. But how is that any different from folks who are, you know, dealing with any type of, of chronic struggle in their life? So with that, we really wanted to make her a symbol of triumph for those folks, because if for many times she was a, a an exploitational symbol for folks struggling with that. So now we wanted to make her one that is uh, the opposite. It's one of overcoming, it's one of triumph and success. But that also isn't sort of looking at it with rose colored glasses, like you can snap your fingers and you're cured, you know, because for a lot of folks, uh, that's not the way it goes. Right. Or at the very least, scarlet colored glasses. Hey, uh, the uh, the idea of we've, we've been exploring this on the podcast a lot lately, the characters from the 60s, female characters in particular, who are later given lots of power and then driven mad by that power. And mm -hmm. now we're seeing these redemptive arcs. It's brilliant. And the work that you and Leah Williams have done with Scarlet Witch, especially has complete well in WandaVision frankly has completely created a new playground for this character and I'm really excited to see what happens for her I think that plot discontinuities aside with the timing the delay of Darkhold actually set up kind of a one-two punch with Darkhold and Trial where it did feel like because I am I have been a noted Wanda hater in my time um a lot of the ways that people have written that character have really set my teeth on edge uh post-decimation. Um, but there are two big elephants in the room with that character, right? It's like, she's crazy! And also the genocide, right? The if if And I would call the decimation that. So there is a complicated... Whether or not she was in control, it's one of those things. Like, Gene ate a star system. We spent 30 years retconning things together to find a way for that to be okay. With Wanda, they tried several times, and I don't think it ever really hit until this one-two punch. You've resolved the problems with her magic driving her crazy, and then I felt that at the same time, Leah kind of resolved the problems that she had with the mutants because of the way she'd been used as a weapon, as a tool by writers in the story. Um, I feel like it's a, it's a great moment now for the character, and whoever is writing that character next, whether it's you or Leah or somebody else, I think there's a lot of possibility now that the baggage has been kind of processed in the right way. I feel like she has almost a fresh start. Uh, Steve, I think you're an incredible writer. I'm so excited for Marauders. And frankly, uh, we've said this a lot. It's just in the last five or six years where we're really seeing queer representation in storytellers and storytelling. And it's such a good time to be a fan of the comics. Uh, so thank you for the work that you're doing. And again, just being with us today, it's, it's a really big deal. Uh, and Connor, I think you're doing similar uh, with Cerebrocast to lead the audience you have built for queer storylines and queer community mm -hmm. and people feeling safe and finding those voices 
through analyzing the history, I think is so valuable. So thank you both for the incredible, incredible work you're doing. Uh, and Noel, of course, on Exponent Ravel, you know how much that love yours as well. <laughs> well. Thank you. That's very sweet. Yes, thank you. And and it's, look, it's only going to get better. You know, I mean, I've been in comics. Well, I've been in comics for like 25 years, but I've been making money off comics in a real way since 2015. And look, yeah, that's I, when we met. Probably, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, that uh, was when the, that was the flame calm with no air conditioning. You know, we're so close. <laughs> it seems like decades, but uh, <laughs> no, you know. But the thing is, is I, I, I've seen you know to encourage folks and give folks encouragement. I've uh, co-written in the past with uh, when I was taking on characters that obviously were outside of my very obviously were outside of my own experiences, and in the past it's been quite the struggle. I mean, I won more times than not. Um, but now you look at this year and we have, you know, this Thunderbird book coming out and, and I couldn't be happier uh, with how, not, not just the fact that he is back, but how he's back, you know, like, yes, I'm there uh, to help Nyla Rose get her story across. Um, but we still have, you know, probably, I'm not going to say definitely, but uh, well, the, the first native mutant, uh, maybe not the first native Marvel character. I'm sure there were a lot of bad ones in the timely comics era. Um, and now he's back 50 years later with a trans woman native co-writer and a First Nations artist. And I, I am so excited uh, to be able to get that out there. And, and that would have been, an uphill battle doesn't even describe it, uh, based on when I first started getting into comics. And now seven plus years later, uh, not a battle at all. And I, I threw it out there as a, as a blue sky idea and, and, and everybody in the office was really receptive. Yeah. I, uh, I don't share super personally on the podcast, but I have two sons that are 13 and 10 and my 13 year old has come out relatively recently. And just this last week, he, uh, he was saying, I'm having a hard time opening up to friends at school because I'm worried what they're going to act like if they find out that I'm gay. And the fact that he's able to say that out loud to me as his gay dad and find support. I think back to 13 year old me who just felt all of those feelings and, and buried them, right? Uh, so not only are we seeing this in our industry, but we're seeing this in our youth. Like it's a, it's a different time right now. And it's such a wonderful blessing to be part of this world. It's a, it's a really wonderful thing. In a print, I can, sh I can open the book and be like, gay, 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 <laughs> like for all of these characters and he gets to see the representation. And once he's 18, he can read a single book that I wrote and that'll be <laughs> I was gonna say he should listen to my podcast, but then you said 13. I was like, no, actually you should not <laughs> listen to my podcast. He's a, he's a little too young for my podcast even. It's yeah, like, no, that's, uh, you know. That's it's my funny. younger, it's my younger son that's really interested in the comics. He goes through them all with me and was like, wait, who's this? Who's this? Uh, so Listen, I read Inferno when I was 12 and I'm fine, clearly. Nothing <laughs> weird happened to me. Chris Claremont did nothing to my brain. I'm 100% great. Thank you, Chris. So, the man I am today is due to X-Men. So this Far is too a, young. This is a great time to transition into our review of X-Men number 34. Uh, we are picking up where we left off uh, in Roy Thomas's run on the book. We have a guest artist this issue with Dan Adkins uh, and, uh, and lettering by Jay Feldman. So it's a kind of a different creative team. We're seeing some new artists work their way into the books back in the 60s. Uh, we have some Hulk villains and Fantastic Four villains that show up in this issue. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's kind of nonsense, but also wonderful at the same time. <laughs> so let's really. Uh, 
Oh, I'm sorry. Really shocking to me. Really shocking to me how little any of this issue matters to the X Men. Let me just get that out of the way. <laughs> I gotta be real. I had forgotten about this issue entirely, and because I don't reread the '60s stuff that often, like I when I'm like going back for a reread, I tend to jump to Giant Size. Um, or if I am looking at the '60s stuff, it's usually the very end where like Alex and Lorna and Sunfire and those other characters kind of come in. Um, I don't read the Hulk. I've read like on and off occasional things. I read some of Al Ewing's Immortal Hulk, great stuff. I don't remember Tyrannos from that. Uh, well, I remember him. I'll tell you, Connor, you would remember him if you played the uh, Sega Game Gear Incredible Hulk side-scrolling game. Because I was a Nintendo gay. I didn't have a Game Gear. So, and it was to my detriment because this, the Sega X-Men games were better. Zaladane was a boss in the Genesis <laughs> X-Men game when in the first level in the Savage Land. Zaladane nowhere to be found on the Super Nintendo. When is Zaladane not a boss, though? We're getting off. We're getting off. We're, we're getting off. I'm sorry. Here's the thing. I was so thrown by this issue because I literally have not read it in probably like 10, 15 years that when I saw Tyrannus, I was like, is this guy ever appeared again? And then I Googled him and he has appeared a lot, apparently, yeah, because yeah. apparently if you're a Hulk fan, he's the big deal. Here, I was just enjoying the fact that he was a camp weirdo with like a Quicksilver haircut. Uh, also, as a classics major in my youth, I was struck when I Googled him to learn, which is not something that we learned in this episode, but apparently he's the historical figure Romulus Augustulus, mm -hmm. who was the final em child emperor of Rome. And in the Marvel Universe, he became an immortal weirdo and you know what good for him who lives beneath the earth with the mole man <laughs> so thank let's god do... i read the fantastic four malver masterworks when i was a kid because otherwise i wouldn't even know who the mole man is you know let's do a quick continuity deep dive as we jump into this and i could go detailed here but we're going to keep it very surface level a pun intended and you'll see what i mean in a moment there is a land under the surface of marvel there's lots of hidden lands uh there's a giant land called subterranea it exists underground and it's divided into various kingdoms and has various creatures living in each of these kingdoms. Uh, oftentimes you see characters or societies of kind of misfits who will live in subterranea. But the two big characters who live down there, one is the Mole Man, who is Harvey Elder, the old Fantastic Four villain from Fantastic Four number one. And the other is Tyrannus, who is a Roman emperor, as Connor just mentioned, who uh, basically found his way underground and discovered the Fountain of Youth. And he has to drink from the Fountain of Youth every day or he'll die. That's kind of the, the silly premise for him. He's but she by H. Ryder Haggard, right? Which Claremont <laughs> will later rip off for Celine. It's oh, like sure, the same sure. idea of, I say rip off in a very kind way, but that's, that it's like an ancient who lives in this hidden land and has a secret method of eternal youth. Tyrannus has a, a race that follows him called the Tyrannoids. And then Love Mole, that Man, for him. Mole Man has a race that follows him called the Moloids. And frankly, yes. they're often at like civil war with each other as they compete for resources. There's a river that makes people forget shit, which we'll see in this issue. There's magic diamonds that do kind of crazy stuff. And there's a woman down there named Queen Kala that they often fight over. She likes one and then the other. And there's all kinds of crazy stories woven into Marvel's history. So there's just a little bit of setup that has very little to do with the X-Men. I don't know that they ever go to Subterranea again, except maybe during like the evolutionary war saga, like from the uh, from the annuals in the 90s. Uh, it doesn't happen much. It is. I, I have because I don't really read Fantastic Four or Hulk particularly, I had forgotten this entire region 
in Marvel existed. And it has a, as you note, a rich, deep lore that I was I mean, fascinated to dig into on the wiki. I was going to say, as, as as readers of Darkhold know, I'm partial to Abysmia. Uh, <laughs> where Rockman from the 12 mm-hmm. uh, is, is from. So, well, the, the Golden Age 12, not the Apocalypse Not, not the Apocalypse 12, the 12 with um, the Black Widow, who's not the Black Widow, but the one who works for Satan. <laughs> But yes, I too, uh, I mean, because I don't even know why I like Rock. I, I actually, I do know why I like Rockman. Uh, it's because he looks like Ram Man from He-Man. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's why I like him. So I, I, you'll, I will always, you'll always see me using Abysmia. Um, and maybe in Marauders too. I actually can't remember if we go there. Uh, but either way, yes, I was, for me, it was like, I mean, I love Mole Man uh, because I watched the incredibly not as good as the 92 X-Men Fantastic Four cartoon from the 90s where he appears. However, the theme song is arguably better uh, than the X-Men theme song. I'm being facetious, but if anyone listening hasn't listened to the season one only theme song of Fantastic Four, please track it down. It's great. Um, and then, yeah, Tyrannus, I knew of all things from that video game, but I but he was hard to beat. So he, he's always pissed me off. So I was excited to go here. But as Connor said, surprised that they were, uh, I guess, the villains uh, of what is tangentially an X-Men story. Um, at best. And it, it's all in the purposes of de- further developing the Cobalt Man, a character who has only appeared 15 times, I believe. Like, it's it, he doesn't even matter. So really none of this. <laughs> matter oh, it's because that's all man. it's all to further establish gene's boyfriend ted who will never matter again <laughs> so you know it's all kind of it's a fascinating time capsule right down to that art by adkins which is so random here in the middle of like the werner roth and don hack era i think adkins was mostly an inker right like i could yeah, I wasn't yeah. even he didn't do a lot of pencil even back yeah then. well the cobalt man is the ninth marauder so He'll be literally uh, on the episode of my show that's about to come out. My guest who has read all the 66 one was like, when the cobalt man replaces Magneto on the quiet council, you will all rue the day that you skip those issues. <laughs> uh, Noah, I know you've been doing a lot of super deep background work for your X-Men and Rabble podcast. Have you come across Subterranea or, or Romulus at all in your research? Tyrannus, not Romulus. No, not, a different yeah. bad character. Pardon me. Yes, I didn't mean to say Romulus. <laughs> Yeah, no, I haven't come across either of them. And I'm also just like strictly X-Men. So really had no idea who these two were in this issue. It's like, okay, these random dudes is who they're fighting today. If you read books like the History of the Marvel Universe series, like it goes back into, because it puts it all chronologically, right? So we go back to- Mole Man is in the first Fantastic Four. So like that, even though I I never was a big reader, I know who that guy is because I've read that issue. There's a a mutant moloid, too. Uh, And a trans moloid. There are cool moloids, honestly. I know the moloids better than I know Mole Man himself, if I'm being honest. Uh, Who is the mutant moloid? I can't remember. I don't. I know it exists because it's in my file of maybe someday, but I can't recall his name offhand. I'll be quite honest with you. Um, I will will post a link on, uh, on our Twitter when we put this up. So one conversation we need to have really quickly before we delve into the review, and we'll just have it once because we can have it a lot. How gay is Tyrannus? <laughs> oh, so gay. Look at it, look at his costume. <laughs> it is the gayest costume I can think of. They took Quicksilver and Namor and said, make it gayer. And we got this. And I love that for all of us. It's a I'm great even, innovation. I'm not even going to point to the costume. I'm going to point to his obsession with uh, youth products. Yeah. yeah. He's moisturizing and it's 
the 60s. What man was doing that? He uh, he is wearing a skirt and a harness and a cape and ankle high, calf high boots. And uh, he is obsessed with drinking from the fountain of youth to keep himself young and buff every day. Well, like uh, I said, he's a, he's an homage to she who must be obeyed. So you're already like, it's like, yes, honey, she must be obeyed. Tyrannus, like beneath the earth, like he's giving you that, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, the gayest, perhaps. And I keep saying this, but this is maybe the gayest guy we've seen in the comics so far. And he's and he's he's pretty fucking gay. Uh, so let's uh, let's launch into the book. We we have a cover where the four X-Men are. Uh, uh, well, five of the X-Men are facing a giant cobalt warrior commanded by Tyrannus. Jean is directly underneath Tyrannus. And thank God there is a rocky shelf uh, stopping her from looking up because you do not want to see. <laughs> what is right above Poor Jean. or do you he's kind of cute he's evil but you know he puts a lot of effort into the whole aesthetic so as we open the book professor x has just been kidnapped in the last issue and this is kind of the first time in the comics he's been written out we see it over and over and over and over through the years but he's been written out of the books for a while we see the X-Men rushing to repair Cerebro so that they can track Professor X. Uh, Jean needs to get off to college, she reminds us, because she hasn't been back to Metro College for a while where she's going. And uh, Beast is working hard. Uh, we see the one and only appearance of Jean Grey's college roommate, Carol, mm-hmm. who is perhaps the most obscure of all X-Characters of all time. She has Carol, a- is, Carol is the ninth marauder. <laughs> <laughs> I would read a Carol and Misty Knight adventure all about how whack Jean is to live with. Uh, uh, Connor, do you want to take uh, page pages three through six? Kind of tell us what. Sure. So, <laughs> sure. So Ted, uh, Jean's college fling, is who is so boring, but will actually fuck her, unlike Scott. So she's like, you know, doing her best. He calls her up because his brother, the Cobalt Man, formerly now just Ralph, I guess, has been uh, kidnapped and he's got a little bandage around his head. And he's like, hey, Gene, can you send the X-Men to help? And Gene is like, <laughs> like, Ted, why would you think I know how to reach the X-Men? Which is just like very funny. Um, and then she spends the whole issue wondering if he suspects that she's Marvel Girl. It's like, yeah, he called you and asked you to bring the other X-Men to his house. Anyway, we get us. But it's okay because she never sees him again. (laughs) Literally never. Right. (laughs) So we get a sensual panel of Warren in repose in his bed uh, in a very tight T-shirt. Warren and Bobby jump into action with Gene because Hank and Scott are busy trying to fix Cerebro because Factor 3 had broken it, I guess. I forget exactly what happened. They fly off to go meet up with Ted. Jean is in her pointy mask era, presaging the gold Marvel Girl mask, which I love. I love that outfit. It's camp. Um, But she lurks in the background the whole time going like, I shouldn't speak because Ted might know that it's me. Um, Which again, like he directly called you on a payphone to ask you to come as a superhero. Then we get a flashback. We see him with his brother in the cobalt lab where in the cobalt cave, I don't know, wherever they is, they're doing this. Robert's research incorporates. Yeah. It's like star labs, but not because it's Marvel, but it's like that vibe. Uh, And then a bunch of, I thought they were Moloids and it was just like Moloid factions, but I guess Tyrannoids uh, emerge from the earth 
And they, Tyrannus is like, hey, bitch, the guards are finished. Take him alive. He shall become my slave. And then uh, punches Ted in the head. And that's the end of page six. <laughs> There's a lot of deep and important continuity here. No, the uh, the relationship between uh, between Ted and Ralph, uh, we see played up over several issues uh, where they're kind of in this rivalry, but it kind of just gets dropped after this because we get so wrapped up in the factor three stuff that we don't really ever see it again. Now, Ted Roberts comes back in a couple of really obscure future comics. You can jump online and look him up if you want to see him. But yeah, we're done with him in the X-Men at this point. So we had Gene as kind of, he was the side fling for a minute, but now Gene and Cyclops are dating and there's just no need for Ted anymore. Uh, uh, Steve, are you familiar with the Ted Roberts character? Do you remember him? Uh, no, um, but I certainly do after, I will remember him after this, obviously, like my heart. No, I mean, I didn't know. I, I'll be honest, like this is similarly, it was in a blind spot for me because I've read early, early stuff. And then there is a, a similar sort of spot to what Connor is saying, where there, there is stuff I haven't read leading up to giant size. And that mostly comes from what was available when I was a kid. And none of it was in trade. You know, like I, like. I still in giant size, you know, there's a there's a past reference by Xavier with uh, Banshee and Sunfire. And I'll fully admit that until I joined the office, I thought that, that was all off panel shit. I thought giant <laughs> size was their first appearance and they were just because they were older, they were, you know, they were generating story in dialogue uh, to be explored one day. Uh, so I was not aware of this because also in, in my bizarre upbringing, we didn't have a comic store where I grew up for a long time, but we did have a Walden books. So while I didn't have access to a lot of these, I did sure have access to Professor Xavier and the X-Men, which was a series where mm. they Stanley scripts and Jan Dersema redrew them in a modern style. Um, so I read all those. And by the way, for folks listening, if you haven't checked that out, you should definitely check it out. I mean, it is, a strange artifact because there's scripts in the 1960s drawn by Jan, who I think is a killer uh, and like an early uh, women in comics artist, but or sh I should say, and very, very modern style circa the 90s. So it, it is a very unique artifact to track down. But so I know what happens in a certain amount of early issues. But in my mind, it was through the gender semi filter. And now as an adult, I can go back and read them. But we didn't have a comic store until like 2000 circa the X-Men movie. So I have... Um, Again, most of my stuff before that was, can you buy it at Walden Books? Is it on a trading card? Uh, and the trading cards, obviously, I had a shitload of X-Men ones, but they were all current as well, other than the paintings of them in their original costumes. Because I think right. the, the Marvel mm -hmm. masterpieces or X-Men, the, the hand-painted ones I got, did have a series where you had the, the 05 uh, black and gold, uh, got their own portraits. But that's about it. <laughs> so the 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 stuff that I would have read as a kid is always is, is all over the place. And now as an adult, I'm 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 taking in as much as I can as fast as I can in, in between deadlines. Well we live in the era where you can get stuff on Marvel Unlimited and read it easy. But back then it was not easy to track oh. down. So that series you mentioned, Professor X and the X-Men, that was crucial to me when I was first collecting comics. And then they started putting out the Marvel Essentials, right? The black and white trades where mm -hmm. you did, I had a whole bookshelf of those and I would read them constantly. Now, when I was in, a, when I was in college at 21, 22, so in a former lifetime, I started writing a series of fan fiction uh, where I would pit supervillains in like the game Survivor and I would place them in different locations throughout the Marvel universe. 
and I'd have readers like vote in and like who who got to win the contest. So there'd be like That's survivors, cute. survivors, masters of evil in the savage land. But I actually did a whole season in subterranea. So like I researched all of this crazy shit when I was in my twenties, which was fun. So we, we see Ted Roberts taking the, uh, well, taking Angel and Gene over to a giant hole in the ground. Uh, he gives them access to an earth borer, which has been divide, designed by uh, his brother, Ralph, or the Cobalt Man. And uh, with Iceman, they they run down into a giant pit. And I just kept thinking, this is like a Disneyland ride, right? You're going over the edge like, wee! <laughs> Destruction <laughs> treads. That is some classic Stanley bullshit. Like... <laughs> Thank God this tank is equipped with suction. It, it really did remind me of when I was a kid making up my own shit characters. And I would be like, well, if I put spikes on the side of this car, it can drive up a wall. Never mind that it would be destroying that building and things like that, you know? And the car um, is bright pink. There's a Geiger counter. <laughs> it's, made of, it's made of the hardest alloy, of course. And uh, immediately they crash into a giant stalagmite. Uh, <laughs> I was, I'm sorry. I was just, la- I'm sorry. I was just laughing at it. Cause I, I turned the page and there's the bit where Ted is using the Geiger counter. He goes, look, I got a Geiger counter while I waited for you. And it led me straight to this 50 foot pit. And it's like, Ted, you didn't notice the 50 foot pit without the help of a Geiger counter. It's right next to the lab, but you know, I digress. Anyway, I'm sorry. No, it's great. And uh, we see Iceman yelling, we're, we're heading smack dab towards the biggest stalagmite I ever saw. Like it's, this it's is so- when Gene calls Warren Scott twice. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. She sure does. She sure does. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot. I can't even, like... <laughs> it's clearly a mistake, but there's a lot of Freudian psychology we could read into this issue if we wanted to. I also, like, later on, when Scott punches out the moment and literally just refers to Marvel Girl as Jean, I'm like, Scott, the moment's awake. You can't just do that. But, Scott, you know. Scott has just been vulnerable with Gene for the first <laughs> time in the last issue. He opened mm-hmm. up about how dangerous opening his eyes is and how he's worried he's going to disintegrate anyone he looks at. So it was after Candy went to Bobby's 18th birthday party with all the cool cats at the at the Coffee A Go-Go and they saw right. the Satan's sons. The, 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 yeah, and then the motorcycle gang attacked. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Watch out, Worry. That's, you know, I love that issue. Uh, Noel, do you want to take over uh, pages 7 through 10? Tell us what happens. Yes. Okay. I have one question first because I can never remember when this happens. Is Gene telepathic yet? No. No. Okay. I was confused because in the beginning she was using that machine and I was like, I didn't think it was yet, but okay. No, she just uses levitational powers and has like dotted lines coming out of her head. Yeah. So we learn a lot later in continuity, not until Claremont's run, that she had her telepathic powers manifest early, but Professor X numbed them to stop the trauma from the telepathic experience. There's some stuff there, but she doesn't. In the comic, she gets them when they kill off Professor X in about 10 issues. And then she has to be the telepath for the team, but then he comes back. So they retcon together a whole thing. But then you get the crazy continuity of they have already been to the future where she has been an insanely powered telepath. Well, yeah, like, don't don't who like gets murdered and like rebuilds her own self out of atoms and then like goes back to the past. But again. they forget all of that. <laughs> right. And just put I the toys back part. in the box. So it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, I said seven to ten. Take over pages uh, nine through twelve. I mean, excuse me. OK, yeah. So they get down into the cave area and it's very uh, Emerald City-esque from uh, uh, Wizard of Oz is what it reminded me of. And then they run into Mole Man, who's dressed to match the decor of his area, I guess. He's got a green cape and a really ugly green jumpsuit on. And he starts a fight with them. So the X-Men start fighting back. 
Um, he has like a little laser beam he shoots at them at some point. Uh, but he runs off after he distracts them with the, what are they called, the moloids, um, and leads them toward the river, which I think is pronounced Lethe. I'm not. Lethe, yeah. It's from Greek. Okay. I, I looked it up. It said Lethe. Okay, so, Lethe. That's right. Okay. I always say it left in my head, but it has like this weird mist coming off of it that once the X-Men breathe it in, they don't know who they are, where they're from, or anything. So they're confused now and basically become servants of Mole Man. And then scene switches and we see Tyrannus and Fred as Fred is finishing up the super alloy cobalt robot that Tyrannus wants um, because Tyrannus has told him that he will kill him if he doesn't do this. So they get into an argument um, because Fred is like, I don't really want to do this. So he drags, Tyrannus drags him off to the dungeons and then scene changes again. And we see Cyclops and Beast rappelling down into the tunnel from the earth core machine to go assist their friends. It's, uh, there's, <laughs> there's so much nonsense here. It's just, insane. We, ha we have two old men desperately trying to cling on to youth by fighting <laughs> each other and building giant 30-foot robots out of swords uh, so they can have a literal massive size matter sword fight with each other is kind of what the plot of this issue is. Like the X-Men are just caught in the crossfire of these two ridiculous old men. It's, uh, it's nuts. Yes. Yeah, what struck me most, as I said, is how tangential the actual X-Men are to this story it could almost happen without them completely, uh, which is not ideal, by the way, Roy Thomas. I mean, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> but it, I mean, it definitely feels like an inventory story that maybe was written without the X Men in it at all. Like it all, it, and I'm not saying it is, but this does feel like this is a story that Roy Thomas had in his back pocket for any month that one of the books needed a plot, and that he uh -huh. just did this. You know, like. It doesn't feel like an X-Men story particularly. And the 60s stories don't often feel like an X-Men story in the way that we think of an X-Men story now. But this is an especially... This is a Fantastic Four comic. I mean, it doesn't feel anything like the X-Men. Really. Jordan White told us when we interviewed him a few weeks back, he's like, the fact that the Factor 3 story went on as long as he, as long as it did and no one knows it shows you how... Is insane, right. Yeah. Who is a member of Factor 3? Blob. <laughs> is he like name one it's like i'm like banshee was working for them i remember that uh, but the like mutant, the mutant master there you go there's a factor three who is basically a fucking dalek by the way he but, is mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. factor three sucks this is a rough era of extra comics it just is <laughs> all three members of factor three are the ninth marauder so <laughs> gotta reread this stuff asap uh, now, the, the X-Men have met the Mole Man before at the wedding of Reed and Sue in Fantastic Four Annual 3. They actually fought the Mole Man, but it seems that they have forgotten here. I was uh, wondering that. I was like, this can't possibly be the first time the X-Men have met the Mole Man. But I okay. just, much like Gene calling Warren Scott and Scotty, I just went with it. I was like, Roy was a little high this month and like, we're just going to keep rolling. So we, the Cobalt Man has built this giant Cobalt robot because Mole Man has built a giant 30-foot robot out of Diamond who has a big fucking sword. And it's kind of this weird... So 
so uh, Tyrannus's robot looks like like a Roman soldier, but Mole Man's robot looks like a crazy alien robot. I don't know. I kind of like the design of the diamond robot, actually. I think it's I think it's a little bit cool. I I, well, I don't know. I would, it would be fun to see it make an appearance somewhere because it kind of just fades away at the end of this book. Uh, he, but, he looks uh, like the robot from the 12, actually, a little bit. Or no, he looks like Auto Man from DC. I'm so sorry. I don't uh, know. I don't know Auto Man. He's a shit version of Robot Man. <laughs> um, but I apologize. I would, there is a robot in the 12, but he, I don't think he looks like this. So Mole Man uh, demonstrates the powers and capabilities of his diamond 30-foot robot for the X-Men. And frankly, it's not that impressive. He has a sword that he can slash around a little bit. Uh, but it's enough to fight some Moloids off. I don't know. That's, uh, excuse me, fight some Tyranoids off. Uh, but he, Oh, who can tell? He has convinced uh, Gene and Iceman and Angel that they uh, work for him. We will serve only you, Master, they say, because he's convinced them with their altered memory status that uh, that they work for him. Now, we see we see Iceman and Scott rush down. They find the uh, the river left and... We, uh, we see Tyrannus run to the Fountain of Youth and quickly get a drink so that he doesn't get old. Uh, we do see old Tyrannus in a couple of issues of The Incredible Hulk, by the way. Um, and frankly, the the war that erupts from here is kind of inconsequential. It's it's even nonsensical. The two giant robots start to fight as Mole Man and uh, Tyrannus try to prove who has the bigger dick. It basically lasts one page. Uh, the Cobalt Man seems to triumph over the, the Cobalt Robot seems to triumph over the Diamond Robot with a giant splang sound effect. Uh, it's 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 relatively meh. Like uh, I I wanted prettier art or something because after all the build up with these robots, it's kind of the point of the plot and it's uh, it's Rock'em Sock'em Robots Underground and it's a little eh. Uh, what did you guys think of this this battle sequence between the robots? It sucks. It do, I mean, it does. I don't know. It, like, there's. Listen, I'm. I have not read a lot of Dan Adkins comics. Maybe he's penciled some really great stuff. I know him primarily as an inker. The art here does not move me, especially. Yeah, just picture them moving the robots, very slowly attacking each other. <laughs> 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 In slow motion, going after each other and like sliding out of the way. It's not great, but. Um... But I am like, I find a thing that I wish that, you no, know, now you're, you know, I, I guess if you see them in Marauders, like now you'll know where, but I love the captions that are also arrows to tell you where to look when reading the page. I this do like those. Very charming. And uh, I only see, like I did a podcast like this where similarly it was with the Fantastic Four and it must've been, you know, much like Thought Bubbles, it must've went out of style at some point. And now Thought Bubbles are kind of back as long as you can pass it off as telepathy. Um, or if you're doing an independent comic like me, you just do Thought Bubbles. But anyway, Love uh, a thought bubble. like I do find the, the caption arrows extremely charming. And every time I go back to the sixties, they're in there and it just, uh, I want to do them. Uh, Steve, close off the issue for us. Tell us how uh, how things conclude. Well, uh, the, the the cobalt robot. So uh, so where were you at? You were at sixteen. Uh, yes, yes. So if you take a right seventeen, sound effect. Because I was reading the swish sound effect, and I was a page ahead of you. Um, well, you know the the, the X Men show up. Uh, Angel, as always, has very little of use to do uh, in this era, but he does. So pretty. He does seem to uh, blind the robot, which is a robot, but apparently only sees with its eyes with some mud. 
and then it falls into some lava and explodes, uh, which is all because of Ralph's uh, uh, almost death, death starian uh, yeah. law that he's put in the robot that uh, despite being made of cobalt, he also mixed in some alloys that are not heat resistant. So upon touching the lava, the robot explodes and Tyrannus becomes enraged and uses a ray gun uh, to blast nothing after getting punched out by a human scientist who does college boxing, uh, as he knows. <laughs> um, and uh, Ralph gets taken away uh, by the Tyrannoids uh, until uh, he's rescued by the still brainwashed Angel, Iceman, and Marvel Girl. Uh, Marvel Girl is now calling her her abilities a levitational power. Uh, a levitational power. Even though she said telekinesis earlier in the issue, and I was actually really surprised to see that show up so early. Um, oh, they say TK like from 63, I think. It's just that her oh. levitational power is how Roy Thomas specifically refers to the dotted lines coming out of her head and making her fly. Um, so, she, so, she, so she's attacking Tyrannus, who's like, uh, barely in the panel, uh, but is held is held in is held in check by Gene. Uh, this is when Beast and Cyclops blast in. I love how Cyclops's optic blasts in these old issues never make the same sound effect. <laughs> like if I could go back in time, I wouldn't do anything except I would make give Cy Cyclops a trademark sound effect, a la Snicked, mm -hmm. because I was working on another book that hasn't been announced yet, but will be announced maybe this week. So last week, based on when this podcast comes out. And uh, I was like, what's Cyclops' signature sound effect? I want to put it in. And there are none. Let me tell you, it makes a different noise every single time. What it would it be? That. If you could make one, what would it be? Uh, I, well, when you see the issue, you'll see which one I chose. Um, but here it says Zat, uh, uh, and he busts in. And when my favorite part, despite having the optic blast, beats Small Man with a karate chop. Um, because Cyclops, you don't chop! That's yeah. when he just refers to Jean. And I'm like, Scott, she's got her mask on. <laughs> yeah it's pretty bizarre uh but then so with a karate chop the mole man is defeated they race in the jetsons underground car to uh <laughs> save the brainwashed x-men uh and scott is still here now also with a gun oh it's a gun that d brainwashes you uh but he's also here with a <laughs> like a Mortal Kombat style leg sweep. <laughs> Literally. Uh, uh, but luckily he's brought the antidote ray, uh, an item that I wish I could get away with in the year of our Lord 2022 uh, <laughs> as a plot solution. Imagine all you could do with an antidote ray. Uh, this is the era of comics where you say, fuck, I'm running out of room. <laughs> <laughs> There's a beam or a ray or something. Yeah, exactly. I think they did that in, in Ant-Man and the Wasp too, but it was Michelle, it was Michelle Pfeiffer's hands that just solved the plot. Mm -hmm. um, what anyway, can't she do? <laughs> any joke I make would be. Uh, but anyway, uh, so yes, the plot is solved thanks to the antidote ray, and uh Tyrannus admits defeat <laughs> while at the same time saying. That if they uh, that they can leave unharmed, which is kind of a very Trumpy position because he's both losing <laughs> and saying he's letting them leave, which is really impressive. Um, and uh, but as Cyclops points out, it's hardly his day for dictating peace terms. Um, but uh, they abandon him to the mole man, uh, and then uh, they they take Ralph back up uh, back up to the surface for to meet it with his unseen brother, and you find out that they have 
made both Tyrannus and the Mole Man uh, forget at least aspects of their adventure uh, uh, to, to end the issue, which is our parting shot. Uh, the is this X-Men issue ends with the last panel not featuring the X-Men with a teaser for Spider-Man uh, coming next. So very clean ending it does and, and a little cruel and i and and i'm i i would note that i remember when doing this same a similar podcast with the fantastic four reed was also kind of a dick in that always uh, and so like i am always interested like these <laughs> these 60s books this isn't as bad but it's still like well we're gonna blast you with your the happy race. ending is we're gonna lobotomize both of you and leave you at the bottom of subterranea essentially like with this amnesia fog yeah it's, it's crazy true. so this so this issue was adapted into the movie sucker punch 2010 and um <laughs> uh but anyway um yeah in retrospect actually bendis is making the 05 forget kind of just feels like an homage to this era doesn't it uh, reading this people issue. are constantly forgetting xavier is wiping people's brains every other day it's a big forgetting time uh but yes so th so they're free and i remain uh and, and bizarrely, oh, it's Beast. I was going to say Beast knows exactly how long since it, they've been since it slept. And uh, they've slept. And then we're free to team up with X-Men in issue, th or excuse me, team up with Spider-Man in issue 35. Um, and that's where we go. I will admit, uh, people who know me know that I am a huge fan by a wide margin of No Fur Beast. So... I was very excited to get this issue and go through it, regardless of uh, the specific plot that we've been discussing. Any issue where Hank is just a guy with giant hands and feet, I'm there for it. So uh, certainly Sex a pleasure. Sexism aside, we do find 60s Beast rather charming uh, with his uh, thin ego and big words. He's a lot of fun and his giant feet, they are constantly. Uh, now, uh, to note really quickly, Steve, the worst sound effect of Cyclops's blasts is frap which they use multiple times in the 60s. We do get to, uh, we get multiple fraps. So I hope that's not the sound effect you chose. Wait, frap with a K? F-R-A-P, frap. Oh, well, uh, no, it's not that. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm being coy because I don't remember what I used in this issue, but I sure as fuck know it's not that. <laughs> so you'll see soon enough. And it's also a different Cyclops, but this will all make sense uh, one week in the past. This will make sense in a at a future, in the future. This one week sense. in the past for this podcast and one week in the future for this recording. This will all make sense. So, so who, who thinks uh, Mole Man and Tyrannus had sex immediately after this issue concluded? Mole Man oh, seems actually pretty straight to me, but Tyrannus, maybe he like lets Tyrannus give him a handy or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not gay if it's through the hole in the rock, you know? So Right, or if like <laughs> Mole Woman is watching. That's like Lady... Kayla or whatever, right? She's a mole woman. He's stunning in that skirt. I kind of want to cosplay Tyrannus's costume. I think it's uh, I think it's kind of great. Uh, for those of I you, I really that... like. Oh, I'm sorry. No, oh, I, was I really like the attaching the skirts to the cape via suspenders. That's that was a really brave move. It's full harness. Uh, it's just... giving Folsom, honestly. Like it's an interest. It is definitely a lot of look it's... for very little coverage. It's every gay say, Halloween costume. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you seem to be uh, deep, the deepest historian of this issue and the other issues. Um, and this is genuine, like there's, this is not a trick. Uh, this is pre-Wolverine, so there's no adamantium. But this is not the only 60s comic obsessed with the concept of cobalt. Uh, but if I'm, and I'm a fucking writer, not a mineralogist. 
That's a made-up metal, right? No, but it's real. It, yeah, yeah, cobalt's real. Yeah, cobalt's real. Because of this, because you know, there was also cobalt blue and uh, a lot of a lot of cobalt characters at DC too. So I wonder, something must have been happening with it in the '60s, where either they just discovered how to make shit out of it or something. I don't know because a lot of a lot of books from that period are talking about it. Silver Age Flash, and um, well, and obviously this book. Yeah, Cobalt is on the periodic table. And in Cobalt Man's original appearance, he's very clearly a knockoff of Iron Man. He literally worked for Iron Man. He's fired by Iron Man. He designs a suit of armor that looks like Iron Man's. Uh, it's just Cobalt Man. Uh, and we, we reviewed that a couple issues back. Now, Roy Thomas does pick up this character as well as Ted Roberts in 1974 in Incredible Hulk 173 and 174. For, so, for those of you that want to follow Cobalt Man's journey, he gets driven mad by some radiation. Uh, he then shows up in Defenders 42-43, and then he disappears for 30 years. Uh, and then we see him in kind of a few comics throughout the early 2000s, as most most recently in Deadpool and the Mercs for Money. But most prominently, he's in Civil War number one. He's one of the bad guys in the famous uh, Civil War Who gets War blown series. up in Stamford. Mm -hmm. And there's even been another Cobalt Man. So uh, he's, he's a character that's not, we're I'm never going to see him in the X-Men again, uh, well, at least in the current continuity. Uh, who knows but, who knows yeah, here's so, the thing about so the x-men well i was just saying like it's just so strange the, the cobalt obsession is like i don't know i'm going to spend my night reading about cobalt in wikipedia and why everybody carried it in 1960 because it was uh, rationed it got, a lot in world war ii i think so maybe it was well, just like one of those things people think about because they were using but it's it not like it. it's not like colossus turned into fucking organic cobalt you know by the time he showed up he's back he's, turning he's into steel, steel right yeah so people must have figured out it's not really the hardest metal or something i have no idea but this is all I'm doing my cobalt headcanon for the real world now. It's important. <laughs> I I do not know a lot about cobalt itself. I know much more about cobalt man. <laughs> I know cobalt blue, as you mentioned, is a pigment. And that's one of the big uses of cobalt is making cobalt blue. Um, but apparently alloys are super strong. I don't know. I remember I, I remember that like it was a metal that in World War II we were like mining for or something at one point because we needed more cobalt. Need more cobalt. Gotta have my cobalt. I'm not a cobalt expert myself, though. Coming soon to X-Men, the lithium man. The but here's the thing, what I was saying about if, he, if he's going to come back, here's the thing about the Krakoa era. Most of the classic X-Men villains are now difficult allies of the X-Men. So when you're looking for villains, you often are going now to slightly more obscure territory like Brimstone Love or Revelation or who knows, the Cobalt Man could pop up. He's not a mutant, so he wouldn't be on Krakoa. Like that's a character that maybe is, maybe it's finally his moment. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, I agree. Like the pandemic, uh, why am I saying that? Oh, because I misread Pace Setting Pinnacles as pandemic on my computer. Uh, <laughs> it went back to page one when I finished. Um, yeah, I mean, th that is a nice thing about the Krakowin era. You know, when I came to, when I came to the office and as Connor diagnosed, like most of the iconic villains are in the government now. So it has been a nice time to create new things and to elevate, uh, lesser known things back to the question you asked me, Chad, at the beginning. Um, and that's why Brimstone Love showed up. Uh, it's why, uh, well, without spoiling things, there will certainly be other people that I think have potential as villains that, that are in need of an elevation. Uh, and it will be a lot of new stuff. You know, I think that's why Ben is doing a ton of new stuff in X-Force. Obviously, Dr. Stasis is brand new uh, in, in X-Men. And so much fun. And uh, and there is a mutant who, to my knowledge, has never appeared in an X-Men comic. To my knowledge, so don't come for me. 
that is uh, th that I was able to suggest that is going to be involved in Orcus that I'm very excited about. Uh, but, you know, again, these are all people that if we do it right, can be elevated for the future and stick around. Which I love. Uh, one of my favorite Marvel villains of all time is Necra, who just showed up in Sabretooth, which yes, I'm super I live about. for Necra. Well, now I that just we can talk about it, I will say she was the one that I was almost going to put in Marauders. And then I found out that Victor had already done it and none of us knew. So it's good that I went in a different direction because I was like, oh, here's a character that seems to have a ton of potential when written by a person of color because. Well, yeah, really right. Rough. Um, Maybe Marvel's I, most racist story, Necra and the Mandrel ever. Well, let's not get excited. But, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I reached out to folks in the office. I reached out to, to, to other creators. It doesn't matter who. And I was like ready to put her in. And then I haven't written the issue yet. And I read Sabretooth. And I was like, oh, she's already back. And she's in the hole. So it's not going to be her. Um, right. I will. Well, I will. We can talk after the podcast as to who's going in her spot. But yeah, it's... Uh, that's a perfect example. Uh, and that's a double tap too, because that's a character that has, I think a ton of, a ton of potential, but in the hands of hopefully well-meaning, but foolish, uh, hopefully well yeah. is, is very stressed, uh, but foolish creators has gone really wrong in the past. So mm -hmm. now having her back under Victor or, you know, word to be Vita or anyone with a, with a coinciding experience, I'm really excited to see where she goes. And folks who know me, I mean, that was what I hoped uh, would be achieved when I uh, worked with Extraño at DC because mm -hmm. uh, it was a similar thing where like this character is a fucking train wreck. Um, but hopefully again, uh, out of no real malice in the creators, but just ignorance. Yeah. Uh, Your and, revamp of Extraño was fantastic. I would love to well, see him more. I'm excited for what Victor's doing with Necro because I do feel the same way. Like you can, you can obviously say, see how that character has gone wrong in the past, but there's so much there. Right creators behind it. It could be truly fascinating. So I am glad yeah. she's back. Glad enough that I already consider bringing her back, but Victor beat me to it and is more suited for it. So we're excited for that. One of my I just favorite... put a Necra episode on the schedule, which I was very excited okay. to do. So I was like, it's time. Who knew? Necra time. One of my favorite random Marvel facts from my brain is there's a there's an issue where the Mandrel, who's Necra's... Well, he's, he's a guy Let's with a monkey face. Let's not get face. into the Mandrel, yeah. He's a guy with a monkey face who controls women with his voice, but or his pheromones. But there's an issue of Daredevil where as part of his plot, he literally puts his face on Mount Rushmore. Like, that's a thing that yes, happens in that continuity. does happen. <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> um, if God can do it, then so the Mandrel. Uh, let me let me take one brief deep dive. I did some research while we were chatting. So Louise Simonson and Terry Shoemaker in X Factor Annual Number Three, 1988, introduced the character Val Orr, V A L hyphen O R, who is a telepathic and empathic moloid who is a mutant. Uh, he gets involved in uh, in some stuff. Uh, X Factor invites him to join, but he says, "No, I'm going to stay here among my people." That's the literal only time he's ever appeared. So, and he's got right. a Kryptonian name. Fuck, I have to use him at some point. That's really <laughs> yeah, uh, that's yeah. as good as buried alien, which is a real deep cut. If you guys are familiar with that, are you not? <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, he and, and then Crosta, the mutant Atlantean. Like we get these like one representative from each subrace. It's amazing. Cerise is the Shi'ar mutant. Technically, oh, sure. Deathbird is sort of a Shi'ar mutant, but they I don't was going to say Cerise is not a mutant, Connor, according to Wiki, as someone who dug real deep into that. But we do love Cerise. We're Cerise fan. is called a mutant Shi'ar. We can get into it. I keep, I yeah, I love Cerise. We'll dig into it. Only I had an iPad right here to live. The Marvel Wiki is not canon. It's just some fan writing what they think. 
Canon is what I make it, Connor. One of that's what I'm saying. So let's talk <laughs> offline. <laughs> if Ariel Dude. has an X gene, there's no reason why Siri shouldn't. Just my thought process. Who has it? Ariel of Coconut Grove, who's also an alien. Well, there's the question of if she would have an egg. Well, this is not what we came to talk about. But Ariel about. does, is what I'm saying. That's canon. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm I fascinated by alien mutants. Uh, it's one of my things I want to deal with more in the book. But I, but I assume that means think. Ariel's people are part human from Earth. Well, like Abigail Brand to, me, to me, when you're dealing with alien mutants, it is probably an analogous experience, but not the right. same experience. But not the X-gene. Like, like Terax is a mutant, but not a human mutant. For example, right, um, and like, like when you see Terex on the X Men, sometimes <laughs> now you'll know why. But um, but Warlock doesn't have an X gene either. He's an analogous mutant experience within the Phalanx. So yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, or Brew. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, examples of that. We're a big fan. We're a big fan of Cerise in this house. So uh, and it will make a lot of sense when folks read Marauders. Uh, yeah, well, we uh, talk. I remember at New York Comic Con, we talked about Cerise. So if I get some obscure continuity, I can usually pick it out. So that like like with Valor, the Molod guy, I can usually go, okay, wait, and I can find it. You, uh, in, in Marauder's Annual number one, your mention of Zara Gary, if I'm even saying that right, I'm like, oh my God, where the fuck is that name from? And I had to really, really search to find that name and the Orcus list from like House of X number one. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's fantastic. I'm, this is such a fun conversation to have just like about the nerdiest shit possible. My, uh, my partner is like, who are you talking to? And what are you talking about? <laughs> well, Zara Gary is actually a funny one because that's like a Hickman joke from, yeah, the Orcus list. And it's after two, um, it's Zaha Gary because it's Zaha Hadid and Frank Gary, who are two very famous architects and the oh, names okay. are put together. Okay. I will tell you that there is a district X cut in uh Marauders that I'm that I'm very happy with. And it's also my favorite way that uh well, I mean I'm biased because I'm me, but I'm very pleased with how we dealt with the idea that we don't have like a power booster on the team. Like Sword has well, Sword had Cortez, but then replaced him with Cora. Right, right. Uh, and we don't have anyone like that, sort of. Uh and I'm and I'm very happy with our work around there. So when folks see Marauders one. And yeah, like it does, we did muties in, in annual. I don't set out trying to do these things, but it happened that we, as I said, we needed a solution. Uh, I started digging and we found a really cool person that we could utilize. Um, I actually think District X was really underappreciated. So you you might end up seeing a couple things from that era, again, as accents. Uh, right, right. That's a great book. I have to throw out uh, from 60s continuity as well. Uh, Bernard the Poet is also a mutant. I really hope to see Bernard the Poet on Krakoa sometime. <laughs> um well uh you might have to talk to Cy for that one that sounds like a <laughs> that does sound like a size spurrier pull yeah oh you guys this is an absolute blast as we're uh wrapping up our conversation today uh let's go in the honor uh, the honor the the uh, order of connor leah steve where can people find you online if they'd like to and what do we have to look forward to in the near future uh related to your work you can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon. Sorry, it's a Kate Bush lyric. Just look for Connor Goldsmith. There aren't that many of them. Or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. Um, in terms of Cerebro, the Sunfire episode should be out by the time you hear this. Uh, the next couple episodes are Stacey X, Sabretooth with Victor Laval, and Chamber. I'm excited about all of those. They're going to be fun. I've got a lot of exciting stuff planned for this year. And um, maybe when is, some... uh, when is my girl Sheik recording with you? 
Uh, I don't know yet, but I've oh, I thought you'd already booked that. No, 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 no. Well, I mean, I have, but like, I'm booked out like into August at this point. It's well, anyway. No, I'm just no. It's not, I mean, but, for folks know. for folks who are unaware of my friend Dark Sheik. If you're listening and you are interested in wrestling, I, I connected her and Connor. Apparently, she will appear at some point. Sheik will be on the show. I think maybe July uh, or August. We'll see. We have to figure out what the I have because I'm taking April off, and then I have May and June already pretty booked up. So. I have to figure it out. Um, but anyway, oh. uh, and so that's what's coming up on the podcast. You can see all of my like day job clients at connorgoldsmith.com. And I may have some comics work of my own coming down the pipe. So keep your eyes on Twitter and stuff for more on that. When that, if that, whatever, you know what I'm saying? I don't like to count my chickens, but. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, Noelle. Yeah, I, uh, my podcast, Excellent Unraveled is on most places that you can find podcasts and I'm on Twitter and Instagram at X-Men Unraveled. Um, and then my personal Twitter, which is more up to date than my podcast Twitter is at L Unraveled at E-L-L-E Unraveled. And I'll be coming out with another episode um, of season two in about a week or so. And Steve. Uh, well, I'm at the Steve Orlando uh, at Twitter. Uh, and also on Instagram, uh, and it's a Venn diagram. You get slightly more comics on Twitter and slightly more food exercise and, uh, stuff like that on Instagram, uh, mostly food these days with me, but yeah, you can find me in both those places as to what's coming out. We've been talking about it, uh, for most of the podcast Marauders, uh, launches in March. Um, and I kind of think Connor, what else do I have coming out? You're my agent. Uh, oh God! Um, Trade-wise, I can tell you, Project Patron from uh, Aftershock book I'm incredibly proud of should be hitting a trade very soon. Uh, Transformers King Grimlock, a full-on like barbarian fantasy starring the T-Rex Transformer. That's that just finished up last week, so that collection will be out soon. Is it available for pre-order? Extreme Carnage collection is out very soon. Commanders in uh, Crisis is out now. In oh yeah! And for folks who like my ex work or like the annual, I have a full like Gonzo superhero epic uh out in two collections commanders of crisis book one and book two from image oh and uh in march ash wednesday uh, i'm i'm relaunching loaded bible uh with my friend tim seeley a book about a renegade clone of jesus fighting dracula in the yep. future sure <laughs> opinions very happy that ash wednesday is a new comic book day this year it all just that's seems fun um and can we there's, I mean, you have that, you have a project coming up that I'm not sure if it's been announced yet, but pro I don't think it, it has actually, no, yeah. Um, so. But there's that, and oh, and Search for Who, another book I'm incredibly proud of that I wrote with John Sway is coming out from Aftershock, collected edition this spring. So if you put my name uh, into oh, the- Party and Prey also just came out in- uh, Oh, that's true. No, we have Party and Prey, Fox. Which, is, uh, which is a gay slasher book. Uh, for folks who haven't read it, we have... Steve is prolific. Steve writes a lot of comics. You should look them up, basically. There's a uh, lot of but good The stuff. main thing is follow Marauders. Uh, I mean, you know, obviously that's the demo for this podcast. But also, as I said, it's, I mean, it, like, it's some of the proudest work I've done in the past uh, seven years of my of my mainstream career. And, and it's only going to get better. I've never been supported like this. Uh, not never, that's a lie. I've rarely been supported like this uh in in an office and it and it's just a great it's a great moment to be creating there uh along with a bunch of other people delivering it there just beyond their a game so check that out and as i said there's just a ton of wild stuff coming in marauders and it bears mentioning as well that eleonora carlini 
uh, is drawing it and is just knocking it out of the park. We've never That's such a good pairing, before. the two of you. It looks unlike any other X book. Um, it's got incredible energy and, you know, it's not the only book with X-Men folks in it coming out that I've written or I'm going to be writing. So keep an eye out for that. And the last thing I'll say is the Thunderbird one shot, something I've fought for incredibly hard. Uh, Leah and I sort of willed the character back, I will say. And yeah, a blue sky pitch that came true. Couldn't be, couldn't ask for a better team to reintroduce uh, Thunderbird, pardon me. And uh, the book is also just hard as hell. You know, for you want to talk about continuity, like since that character has been dead, everybody has sort of made him into the mutant Tupac. But if you read the issues before he dies, he's an asshole. Like, and he doesn't know any of these people at you know, all. Like, so, so he's not like, I mean, he's very different from Warpath and you will see how uh, in, in, in the issue. And yeah, he's not like a cuddly feelings guy. If anything, he's kind of like the Ben Grimm of the mutant community. He's grumpy, uh, but you know, he'll go to the mat for you once he finally decides he likes you. So I'm super excited for him to be back and to be working with Nyla, to be working with David Cutler. Uh, it's a dream come true. And that book is going to be fucking awesome. What an absolute pleasure to talk to three passionate, intelligent, incredible people who are at the top of their own individual games. I'm so inspired by each of you and the work you're doing, and I'm a big fan of all three of yours. So thank you, thank you for your generous time this afternoon. Uh, my name is Chad Anderson. You can find Grimalk and Lane, uh, Grimalk and PP, like podcast on Twitter or on Instagram. I keep my own social media private. Uh, the three of you here with me are welcome to follow, but I, uh, because I have kids, I don't make that available to the public. Uh, we have some really incredible things. We're booked up on Grey Malkin Lane for the next several months. Uh, well, three months. That's not several. Isn't it crazy how that happens? It's so, it's so nuts. Uh, next episode, uh, Andre Mason and I are going to be interviewing the incredible uh, artist, June Brigman. Uh, and then oh, after that, amazing. I know. I'm so excited. And then after that, uh, Demanda Martini, the drag queen. Love and, Demanda. And Heather are going to be joining me for issue number 35 with our guest, Ariana Mayer, which we are so excited Love about. Love Ariana Mayer. You have such a great guest that lined up. That's we, great. we have some really crazy stuff coming up. Some of my childhood heroes. Uh, so, hey, thank you all for being here, uh, for reviewing this nonsense issue of the X-Men with us. Uh, <laughs> it was so much fun. And uh, we will see you back here next time on Great Monster Lane. Bye.